Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast is sponsored by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. To schedule your free product tour right now, go to netsuite.com gold. Well, the second stimulus bill, COVID relief bill, has now passed both the United States Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives. So all the bill needs now is for President Trump to sign it into law. He clearly will do that. After all, Donald Trump has never met a government spending bill that he did not like. So unfortunately, the bill will become law. Now, this bill has the distinction, although maybe distinction isn't the right word, but it is the longest bill ever enacted. The total page count is 5,593 pages long in a single bill. Now, I know they rolled this stimulus bill into some other bills, so there's a lot of stuff in there. But whatever is in there, the ink is barely dry. They finished this bill, right? They finished writing it on Sunday night. And on Monday, the House is already voting for it. On Tuesday, the Senate... Has anybody who voted for this bill had a chance to read it? 5,593 pages? I mean, think about that for a minute. You know, one of the best books, right, that I've read, one of my favorite books, which also happens to be a very, very long book, 
is Atlas Shrugged, Ayn Rand's novel. If you haven't read it, you should read it. But it's long. It's, I think, 1,100 pages or almost 1,100 pages long. You're not going to be able to read that book in a weekend. Yet the stimulus bill is like reading Atlas Shrugged five times over. (laughs) Did anybody read this bill? You know, I checked. I didn't realize, but the Bible or the average Bible only has about 1,200 pages. You figure the Bible is pretty long, right? Well, not nearly as long as this stimulus bill. Can you read the Bible in a weekend? I don't think so. So clearly, nobody read this bill. In fact, I looked up on the internet. A lot of the people who listen to my podcast probably don't remember the uh, encyclopedias. You know, I mentioned on my last podcast about people working their way through college. Well, one way people used to work their way through college was selling encyclopedias door to door. You know, now you've got the internet. So, I mean, they put encyclopedias out of business. But I used to have the World Book encyclopedias, right? The two big ones were World Book and then Britannica. But they were very expensive. There were lots of volumes. The typical world book, I think, all of the volumes, and they would break it down by letters, right? One book would be letter A, then letter B, and so on. Well, if you added up all the books of the encyclopedia, world book, I think it's about 15,000 pages. So it's longer than the stimulus bill. But basically, the stimulus bill was the equivalent of all the volumes through I. I mean, how long would it take you to read every single word on every page in the encyclopedia all the way through volume I, right? Well, clearly, nobody in Congress made any effort to read this bill. Yet, how did it pass with such overwhelming support? I mean, remember all the Republicans who made fun of Nancy Pelosi because of Obamacare, right? Well, we have to pass the bill to see what's in it. And a lot of people made fun of her. Well, that's what's happening here. Clearly, you got to pass the stimulus bill to see what's in it because nobody who's voting for it has any idea what's in it. I mean, they may know some of the things that are in it, but do they know everything that's in it? Do they have any idea what they're voting for? No, nobody cares. Nobody has the guts to be against this. Because nobody wants to stand in the way of the voter and free money. Now, I don't want to say nobody because there were some principled Republicans, not many, but some who voted against it. In the House of Representatives, there were 50. In fact, there were 51 if you count Justin Amash, but he's no longer a Republican. He is a libertarian. So those 51 people voted against it. There were only two Democrats in the entire House, right? Because the bill passed 359, yay, 53, nay. There were two Democrats that voted against it. Rashid Tlaib of Michigan and Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii. Remember Tulsi, she ran uh, for president as a Democrat. I think Rashid objected to it because it just was too small. She voted against it on the principle that it wasn't socialist enough. They weren't giving away enough free money. And I think Tulsi was more upset that too many rich people qualified for free money. So I respect her for standing on that principle because she is correct. A lot of wealthy people and businesses are going to get a bunch of money. And I will go over that a bit later. But that's why those two Democrats opposed. Now, in the U.S. Senate, there were only six Republicans that had the guts to vote against this monstrosity. It passed in the U.S. Senate 
by overwhelming support, there wasn't a single Democrat that voted against the stimulus. So let me just call off the names of the Republicans who actually deserve to be reelected, right? These are probably the only six uh, that uh, we should uh, vote to return to Washington. Number one is Rand Paul of Kentucky. And in fact, Rand delivered an excellent speech on the floor of the U.S. Senate. It's on YouTube. I tweeted it out. I put it on my Facebook page. So check out Rand Paul of Kentucky's speech in opposition to this bill. Also, Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, Mike Lee of Utah, Ted Cruz of Texas, and Rick Scott of Florida. That's it. Those are the only Republicans in the Senate. The rest are a bunch of rhinos. And by the way, you know, we do have this runoff coming up uh, in Georgia in January. And the balance of power in the U.S. Senate hangs in the balance of this election. A lot of people, hey, we really need to make sure the Republicans hold the Senate. Really? Really? These Republicans? The Republicans that we've got now? They're a bunch of rhinos. Even if the Republicans maintain control of the U.S. Senate, it is not going to stop Biden and the Democrats from pushing their big government agenda into law. I mean, obviously, they weren't willing to stand up to Trump and his deficit spending and his expansion of government. There's going to be plenty of Republicans who are going to side with the Democrats to make government bigger, to make deficits bigger. Yes, I do think on the margin, if the Republicans maintain the Senate, the expansion of government, the growth of government will be somewhat smaller than it would be if they lost. And the deficits may be a little bit smaller than they would be if they lost. But we're only talking about the Greek. They're going to do nothing to make a substantive change in the direction of the country. And in fact, if you listen to Rand Paul's talk in the Senate, he referenced the deficit. One of the reasons that Rand is opposed to the stimulus bill is all of the debt uh, that is being incurred in order to finance it. And he made reference to the official increase in the debt over the past year of $3.3 trillion. However, if you actually look at the national debt, which is a more honest barometer of how much the money the government is borrowing rather than what they pretend they're borrowing, the national debt has already increased in this calendar year, 2020, by $4.8 trillion in one single year. And obviously, if this bill is signed and those stimulus checks, and I'll get into those in a minute, if they get mailed out before the end of the year, of course, they want to hurry up and get those checks out there for Christmas presents, right? I mean, the, the, the senators who voted against this were described as the Grinches who were trying to steal Christmas because they got in the way of all the free stuff, right? But if these checks get sent out, the deficit or the national debt will explode uh, and more than $5 trillion of debt will have been added in this one year, in 2020, all by itself, over $5 trillion of new debt. You know, the entire national debt of the country didn't even get up to $5 trillion, I think, until like 1999. So all those years, more than 200 years of America, right? all the way until 1999, 2000, the peak of the dot-com bubble, that wasn't too long ago. That's how long it took to run up $5 trillion in debt. And we did that in one year. And in fact, 
if this bill is signed and these checks go in the mail, I'm pretty sure when they finally, you know, get the totals done, that Donald Trump, during his four years as president, the national debt will have grown more under four years of Trump than it did under eight years of Obama. Think about that. Trump ran against Obama because Obama was running up big deficits. He was against the Obama deficits. And then he took over and he outdid him in only one term. And what makes it even more significant is the fact that Obama himself, during his eight years, added more debt to the country than every president that preceded him from George Washington to George W. Bush. And Trump added more debt than Obama in half the time. Of course, we don't know how much debt Biden is going to add during his term. I have a feeling that Trump's record won't last very long. But the bottom is, this is massive debt. You know, I was watching on CNBC this morning and Rick Santelli, who, you know, I normally like, is probably the least bad guy or good guy on uh, CNBC, although he did drink the Trump Kool-Aid like a lot of other people uh, who unfortunately got hoodwinked by that. Uh, But he was talking about the year in review because we got the GDP numbers that came out today and uh, some, you know, optimistic talk about Q4. And overall, if you take a look at all of the GDP, his point is that we really didn't take that big a hit. So in other words, it wasn't that bad a year, right? Yeah, for all the COVID and the lockdowns and the big collapse, we had a big rebound. And overall, GDP was barely down. And so it wasn't that bad a year. The problem with just focusing on one side of the national balance sheet is you get a distorted picture of reality. Because if we had to add $5 trillion to the national debt to prevent the GDP from collapsing, are we really better off? We're not. You have to look at all the debt that we incurred. This is a horrible year if you look at how much more indebted we are at the end of the year than we were when the year began. I mean, you you know, if you were an individual and you were trying to measure whether or not 2020 was a good year or a bad year, if you ended the year far more in debt than you began the year, I mean, how could you conclude it was a good year? I mean, a good year would be like your net worth went up. You paid off your debts or you accumulated a lot of wealth. If you took on massive amounts of debt so that you were in much worse financial shape at the end of the year than you were when the year started, how could you possibly conclude that it was a good year? So collectively, we're all much worse off, you know, as a group. Now, certainly there are individuals that are much better off. I mean, personally, you know, I mean, my net worth went up quite a bit in 2020, even though I didn't own any Bitcoin. I happen to own a lot of things that did very well. In fact, some of the stocks that I own did much better than Bitcoin and my businesses all around did good. So, you know, my personal net worth went up uh, and certainly want to thank uh, all of the customers that helped make that possible. Uh, But I know there are a lot of individuals whose net worths went down, clearly. But overall, the collective net worth of the country went down. Because even if your own individual net worth didn't go down, if you factor in your pro rata share of the extra $5 trillion of debt that the U.S. government took out in your name, then you're worse off. I mean, people can't forget about all that. 
every American is on the hook for their share of that. Now, I guess I'm not really on the hook anymore because I live in Puerto Rico, at least so long as it's still a territory, I'm not on the hook. If we become a state, then maybe, you know, I'm back on the hook. But for now, you know, I'm not. But all the Americans who are living in the states and who are paying these income taxes are on the hook for their share of all the debt that was not only accumulated this year, but in all the years prior. So you can't overlook that in trying to assess you know, your, your actual financial position. So when you look at everything and consider all the debt as well as the GDP, 2020 was a horrible year. It was a horrible year economically, of course, horrible year for individual freedom and liberty. I mean, look at all the freedoms we surrendered for the government to keep us safe when it comes to COVID. And I think we've created some very, very bad precedents uh, that the government will expand on in the years ahead. But I want to start getting into what is included in the 5,593-page stimulus bill. Of course, I'm only going to talk about a couple of things because I haven't read the bill, obviously. Nobody has. And so who knows how many bad things are in there? I mean, this thing has got to be loaded up with more pork than any bill in the history of bills, right? I mean, everything but the kitchen sink must be in there. Because Congress knew that nobody would vote against it, at least not enough people to stop it. So this was your chance. Anything you wanted, shove it in here, right? And it's going to get passed because everybody has to vote for it. Uh, so who knows how many horrible things are, are waiting to come back and bite us, right? And we're going to find out over time just how much worse this bill actually is than it is on the surface, because beneath the surface, it's got to be much worse because it can't be 5,593 pages of good things, right? All of this is pork. All of this is government spending that is going to make the country poorer, not richer. But the two big issues are the stimulus payments to individuals and the stimulus payments to small business and of course, many of the small business owners are themselves individuals, uh, but some of them are, you know, obviously they have larger companies. But let's start off by talking about the direct aid. So first of all, every American who qualifies, and there's a certain amount of income, I think it's up to $75,000 for an individual. Maybe they double that, I forget, for a married couple, then there's a phase out. But as long as you earned less than the numbers, and I think they're still using the 2019 uh, tax year, but every American is going to get $600. And if you're a married couple, you're going to get $1,200, right? Or maybe, I don't know if you have to be married or if you could just be cohabitating. I'm not sure of the exact rules, but couples, maybe if you just file a joint return, right, you get $1,200 and otherwise $600. That's, I think, half of what they got in the original bill. And I, at 150000 yeah, I'm reading that. That's where it's phased out by. So it, you start losing it once you get above 75000 You get to 150000 You've lost it all. Um, you also get some money for, for kids. You get extra money. So not as big as the first round, but still a pretty big chunk of money. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you 
regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com gold, code gold. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold traffic jams tailgating pileups oh the joys of driving how could it get worse the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive that's right The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The other major uh, benefit in here is the extended unemployment benefits. Now, this was a big disaster when they passed it the first time because what the Congress did is they created a situation where a lot of people were being paid more money not to work than they were earning when they had jobs. And of course, that created a powerful incentive for people not to want to go back to work. Because if you're getting more money not working than you would earn working, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist, although apparently, uh, you know, a congressman can't figure this out, uh, to figure out uh, that people are going to prefer to be paid more to not work. And in fact, there were some Republicans who noticed this moral hazard, and they did try to at least limit the amount of the supplemental uh, benefits so that people would be paid no more than they earned when they worked. So the most you could get being unemployed is exactly what you used to earn while you were employed, right? They didn't want people to get paid extra for not working. They wanted to cap you for getting paid the same amount not to work as when you were working. But even that got got struck down. So the Republicans weren't even willing to impose that kind of a cap. Now, you would have thought that they might have learned their lesson based on, you know, reality of what happened. Well, the only thing they did with this new bill is they reduced the supplement from $600 a week to $300 a week. Again, it has no relationship to what 
the individuals earning the benefit or receiving the benefit earned when they were working. It's just you get an extra $300 per week. So clearly, there are still going to be people who are going to be getting more money to not work than they earn if they go back to their job. So you're still going to have this incentive. Although clearly, since you reduce it from 600 to 300, not as many people will fall into that position. But clearly, a lot of people will. You know, let's say somebody is a you know entry level worker. They're making twelve dollars and fifty cents an hour, a little bit above the minimum wage. That's about five hundred dollars a week, assuming they they work uh, forty hours a week. In fact, it's exactly five hundred dollars a week uh, at a forty hour work week. Let's say that person would get two hundred dollars in regular unemployment benefits, and then he got another three hundred in supplemental. Well, that's five hundred dollars. That's the same as he's earning working. But there's still a powerful incentive to not work because after all, if you just get $500 in the mail, you don't have to do anything, you just get a check, that's a lot different than actually having to earn the money, having to wake up early, you know, set your alarm clock, get up early, get dressed, you know, commute to work uh, if you're still going to work and actually do a job that you probably don't like. I mean, if you're getting paid $12.50 an hour to do something, Chances are it's, it, you know, it's not a stimulating job. I mean, you're not doing it because you really enjoy it. You just need the 1250 or you need the experience. Whatever you're doing, you're trying to work your way up some kind of a ladder. And so you're doing all this grunt work and you're, you know, you're getting $12.50 an hour. And then, of course, at the end of the day, you're fighting traffic on the way home. Uh, there's a big difference between doing all that and just, you know, sleeping in and getting a check. I mean, most people would prefer free $500 than earning $500. In fact, most people would rather get a free $500 than earn $600 or earn $700 because there is a value to leisure. Leisure is a valuable commodity, right? I mean, people work a lifetime with their goal to retire so that they don't have to work anymore. So if the government makes it easy for you to retire sooner than later, well, that's a win. In fact, this is like a gigantic paid vacation. I mean, people look forward to paid vacation. So the government is saying, hey, we're going to put you on a paid vacation. Just don't go to work. So the same problems that existed with the first COVID relief bill exist with this one, except the incentive not to work is cut in half. Instead of getting an extra $600 a week for not working, you only get an extra $300 a week for not working. But the principle is still the same, just the degree of harm will be somewhat less. But the bigger issue and where the real fraud is going to take place is with the payroll protection loans. And loans are in quotes because the loans are forgivable and they're not really loans, they're grants. Because as long as you don't fire your workers, you don't have to repay the loans. You get to keep the money. And the loans are a function of your payroll. So the more workers that you have, the more money you can borrow. Oh, you're not really borrowing it. You're getting it for free. You just you just don't fire those workers. Now, the supposed goal of this was to get businesses that were going to fire their workers because they had nothing for them to do, right? You're a restaurant, you've shut down, and you've got some employees that you don't need because your restaurant isn't even operating, right? So a lot of businesses that were directly impacted by COVID were probably going to fire workers. And so the government's like, hey, we'll give you some money. Use this money to pay your workers. You don't have any revenue coming in. Look, here's the money. Keep your workers on the payroll. 
Uh, and that was supposedly the purpose of PPP. And of course, I even criticized that because there are a lot of businesses that needed to go out of business and keeping them in business with these PPP loans was bad economic policy, but the government did it anyway. But the other problem with the PPP is that it wasn't limited to businesses that actually suffered as a result of COVID-19. There were no restrictions. I mean, people were able to get PPP loans even if their business benefited from COVID. Even businesses that were making more money because of COVID than they made before COVID and had no intention of firing any workers. In fact, they were hiring more. Those businesses were also able to qualify for PPP loans. And most of them are going to end up being forgiven. And of course, there was all kinds of fraud. I mean, people that didn't even have businesses were just pretending to have businesses in order to qualify for this money. There were so many people getting so much money so quickly, it was impossible to police. And of course, there was a lot of criticism after the fact of the PPP loans and how much fraud uh, uh, the program enabled and how people were taking advantage of it, which of course they always do. Right? Government never understands the moral hazard of their programs and how people will alter their behavior to qualify for any free money the government is giving out. So in theory, they tried to do something this time to limit the fraud. And some of the changes is they, they reduced the maximum number of employees you can have to be considered a small business. I think it was 500 before. Now it's fewer than 300 employees. They reduced the maximum that you can borrow from 10 million down to 2 million, but they also simplified their forgiveness process if the loan is under 150,000. But what they did to supposedly limit the plan to businesses that actually suffered was they said that in order to qualify, your business has to have at least one quarter of 2020 where the revenue dropped by 25% from the same quarter in 2019. Now, if you apply for the loan before the end of this year, then you can only use the first three quarters. But if you don't apply until after January 1st of next year, then you can count the fourth quarter of 2020 as the year where you had a quarter over quarter 25% decline in your revenue. And of course, that is what opens this up to massive fraud because now every small business owner who knows what the rules are has plenty of time to defer enough revenue from the fourth quarter of 2020 into the first quarter of 2021 so that their Q4 2020 revenue is at least 25% below their Q4 2019 revenue. And now they qualify for a PPP loan, i.e. grant, even if they ended up making more money in 2020 than they did in 2019. And of course, there are plenty of businesses probably that did have one quarter, maybe the second quarter, right? A lot of businesses had a really bad second quarter. They may have had a pretty good first quarter, a pretty good third quarter, but maybe they had a, a, a weak second quarter. That's when everything tanked. So there's probably a lot of businesses that already meet that threshold now that can qualify for loans that overall are still going to make more money 
in 2020 than they did in 2019. Remember, there are a lot of businesses that are COVID winners, right? Businesses that actually did better in this environment than they did pre-COVID. There is nothing in this bill that limits those businesses from getting the free money. And in fact, all you have to do is certify that your revenue in one of the quarters was down by 25%, which is easy to do anyway with creative accounting in the extremely unlikely event that you're actually audited and asked to prove that your revenue actually went down. Because very few of these businesses who qualify for loans are ever going to get audited. Everything that they say is just going to be accepted on face value. So if you fill out the application and you just say, was your revenue down in one of your quarters by 25%? Yes. And chances are that's all you're ever going to have to do. Nobody is ever going to ask you to prove that you had a 25% down quarter. But just in case you do, you can easily cook the books right now and and defer your revenue uh, from Q4 2020 into Q1 2021. It's the easiest thing that you could do. Maybe the only downside of that is taxes could be higher next year. Uh, on your income. So by pushing money into next year, you could end up with a little bit higher taxes. But if you compare that to the massive amount of free money you're going to get from the PPP, it's a no-brainer. And in fact, the other sweetener that they threw into the pot this time around, because there was some confusion last time, the IRS uh, didn't want to let the people who got the PPP money double dip. And what I mean by that is normally if a business pays wages and salaries, it deducts the wages and salaries from its own taxes, right? Because it's an expense. Well, the IRS said, well, wait a minute. If the government is giving you the money to pay your workers and you're paying the workers with government money, well, then you can't deduct the salaries because you didn't really pay the salaries. They didn't reduce your profits. So why should you get to expense an expense that you didn't actually make? Because remember, the PPP loans that are forgivable are tax-free to the business owner. Uh, So, you know, it would be a double windfall if you got tax-free money uh, based on your payroll, but then you also got to deduct from your own taxes uh, your workers' pay that you didn't even have to write the checks yourself. Well, this time they clarified it. And according to the government, the employers not only get to keep the PPP money tax-free, but they also can write off the wages and salaries against their own income taxes. So let's say somebody got a $100,000 of free money to make $100,000 worth of payroll. They get $100,000 for free, pay no taxes. They pay their workers $100,000 and they write that $100,000 off against their own taxes. And now maybe they save another $30,000 or $40,000. And so the total amount of free money would be the money they get from the government and the tax benefit that they derive from paying their workers with government money instead of their own. Another provision of the PPP has to do with when employers who have not been deducting the full payroll tax from their workers have to send those payments in to the IRS and therefore start deducting those payroll taxes from their workers. Because remember, Donald Trump, by executive order, said that the payroll tax would be lower. And so now workers are basically getting a free loan uh, from the government because they're, they're going to have to pay those taxes later rather than sooner. The deadline to pay those taxes was in August of 2021. 
Now that deadline was extended through the end of 2021. So employers have the entire next year before they have to start deducting these payroll taxes from their workers. And of course, who knows uh, how many more times it's going to get extended once the Democrats are in control here. I mean, this may be extended indefinitely. I mean, I think the same thing is going to happen with these extended unemployment benefits, with these PPP loans. In fact, the reality is the more free money the government gives small businesses, the more dependent those businesses become on that free money and the harder it is for the politicians to take it away. You know, once you are living off the government, you're nursing on the government teeth, you know, you need that. That's the only way you're going to survive. You you don't even know how to uh, fend for yourself anymore. I mean, a lot of these businesses that should be restructuring are not because they're getting this free money. And so you're creating a situation where you have more and more businesses that are completely dependent on these government handouts. And it's going to be harder and harder for the politicians to stop handing the benefits out because who wants to vote against it? I mean, look how few Republicans have the guts to vote against this handout. You know, how many are going to be able to vote against the next one and the next one? So we may be setting ourselves up where these uh, government handouts to the unemployed workers and to businesses are a permanent part of the government expenditures. And of course, all of it is paid for by the Federal Reserve. All of it is paid for by the printing press, by inflation. And that means the dollar is going to collapse. It hasn't collapsed yet. It's gone down. Gold's gone up. It hasn't gone through the roof. You know, I see a lot of people on Twitter kind of making fun of me saying, hey, you know, why are gold stocks doing so poorly this year? Look, they're still beating the S&P 500. So the return on the GDX and the GDXJ still beats the S&P 500 in 2020. Now, could the returns have been a lot better? Sure. And, and I expect that they will be a lot better next year. And there were individual stocks that did much better than that. And there were other stocks that were inflation hedges uh, that actually did better uh, than some of the precious metal hedges. Now, obviously, a lot of gold stocks didn't do as well as Bitcoin. And people want to make a big deal about the fact that Bitcoin beat gold in 2020. Sure. But let's see what happens in 21. There's a lot of air that can come out of that Bitcoin bubble in 2021, yet the gold bull market has barely begun. And that's even a a bigger reality when it comes to the gold mining stocks. So people really need to recognize what is going on, what the government is doing, how the stimulus is being financed, And do what you can to avoid being on the hook for paying for it. And the way you're on the hook for paying for it is by holding U.S. dollars or any debt instruments denominated in U.S. dollars. If you're a small business owner, I don't need to tell you that running a business is tough. Maybe tougher than ever, especially when the PPP loans run dry and you actually have to earn a profit instead of relying on government to keep you in business. But you might be making it even harder on yourself than necessary. Don't let QuickBooks and spreadsheets slow you down anymore. It's time to upgrade to NetSuite. So you can stop paying for multiple systems that don't give you the information you need when you need it. Ditch the spreadsheets and all the old software you've outgrown. Now is the time to upgrade to NetSuite's by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. NetSuite gives you visibility and control over your financials, your HR, your inventory, your e-commerce, and more. Everything you need all in one place instantaneously. 
Whether you're doing a million or a hundred million in revenue, save time and money with NetSuite. Join the over 21,000 companies already using NetSuite right now. Let NetSuite show you how they'll benefit your business with a free product tour at netsuite.com gold. Schedule your free product tour now at netsuite.com gold. That's netsuite.com gold. I tweeted out a link to an op-ed written by Brandon Hashbrook who is an assistant professor at Washington and Lee University School of Law. So a law school professor. And he actually came up with the nutty idea of having reparations in voting. And his theory was that African-American votes and Native American votes really don't count. That voting in and of itself is somehow racist and that Black Americans are really not given their fair share when it comes to voting. And therefore, what he proposed is that Black Americans and Native Americans be given two votes each. And that supposedly would level the playing field because now they would have more political clout because obviously they're in the minority and so they need more votes. And of course, you know, he didn't get into the concept of how black do you have to be in order to qualify for that second vote? I mean, can you be like Elizabeth Warren? She's like one one thousandth Native American. I mean, does Elizabeth Warren get a second vote because she's got that tiny bit of Native American blood in her? I mean, the same thing would happen uh, for African-Americans. I mean, if you're half black, like, you know, President Obama or uh, Mahomes, you know, does Mahomes get uh, two votes because he's half black? I don't know. I mean, how, you know, how do you figure this out? Again, he didn't even touch on the absurdity of, of that. Of course, you have the same problem with reparations. But the idea that people should be given extra votes simply because of their ethnicity, the color of their skin. I mean, how much more racist can you be? Now, of course, nobody is going to attack this guy for such an obviously racist policy, right? I mean, if you are a professor and you come up with an article and you say, hey, maybe you should have to be literate to vote, or maybe there should be a property qualification, or maybe you should have to be a taxpayer to vote. If you wanted to somehow limit the suffrage, they would be attacking you. I mean, you'd probably have to resign uh, from any university that you work for if you, if you tried to write an article like that. But if you approach it from the other perspective and try to say, hey, African-Americans should get extra votes, they should get to vote twice, Oh, that's no problem, right? Nobody attacks you. Nobody criticizes you. This is perfectly acceptable to have such a racist perspective. And, you know, when I read this article, I decided to tweet it out in a sarcastic way to kind of see the reaction that I would get. And, you know, I didn't get nearly as many uh, people responding to it as I thought I was, you know, because I hashtagged it, uh, Black Lives Matter, and I thought that, you know, maybe more people would, you know, not even see the sarcasm because maybe they would see it uh, from the hashtag and they didn't know me. Uh, I only have 318 likes. And again, I don't know if they're liking the sarcasm or if they think I'm serious and liking that. But what I tweeted out, as I said in jest, that this proposal doesn't go far enough. I wrote whites are 60 percent of the population and blacks Uh, and Native Americans are only 13% and 1.5% respectively. So to really level the voting playing field, blacks should get five votes each, 
and Native Americans should get 40, right? That way they would have the same relative votes as whites. And of course, I'm just, you know, being completely sarcastic about it. But the whole concept that this guy was promoting really is voting as theft. Why does he think blacks need more votes? So they can take more stuff away from other people, whether it's whites or any other ethnic group. I mean, that is the problem the way he sees it. Because he said that this is a better form of reparations than actual reparations. Because if blacks are given enough political power, which they don't have as minorities, right? Because they're only 13% of the population. But if they could have 26% of the votes, you know, instead of 13, then it would be easier for blacks to elect people that would pursue black-friendly redistribution-type programs. So in other words, it would make it easier for black Americans or Native American Americans to steal from the general population if they only had extra votes. Because, you know, if we actually had a country where the rule of law was respected, if the Constitution was respected, it wouldn't even matter if blacks had extra votes or Native Americans had extra votes because government couldn't do anything to reward them for their votes because the government, if it followed the Constitution, cannot just take money from one citizen and give it to another. But because we no longer respect the Constitution and it's a mobocracy, right? It's a, everything is up for grabs. You know, whatever you can vote for, you can take. And so that's why this guy wants blacks and Native Americans to have extra votes to make it easier for them to take away the property of the people who they can now outvote. The reality, of course, though, is since blacks vote as such a monolithic block, I mean, look at Joe Biden says, hey, if you don't even vote for me, you ain't black, you know. And there's some truth to that, given the high percentage of blacks that routinely just cast their vote for Democrats. And so this does make it a lot easier for the Democrats to win, knowing that they're going to get such a high percentage of the African-American vote. In fact, Donald Trump did better than most Republicans when it comes to African-American votes, but still the overwhelming majority uh, cast their votes for Democrats. So they're already voting for Democrats. So what does this guy think is going to change? I mean, are, you know, I guess it will just make the Democrats that get elected even more beholden to black voters than they are today if they know that every one of them gets to vote twice. I also wanted to finish up the podcast by relating an experience that I had with Banco Popular here in Puerto Rico. Now, of course, a lot of people who don't live in Puerto Rico are not familiar with Banco Popular, but some of the people who have followed in my footsteps and have relocated to Puerto Rico are probably very familiar with Popular. Anyway, I had been doing business with Banco Popular for about eight years. We had corporate accounts for Europe Pacific Asset Management, and myself and uh, James Nelson, uh, we had personal uh, accounts for our families at Banco Popular. Anyway, as a result of the 60 Minutes hit piece that came out that I spoke about on this podcast, uh, where 60 Minutes Australia, not even 60 Minutes America, but so this Australian uh, fake news organization comes out with a completely false and fabricated story about me facilitating tax evasion and money laundering and runs that story. And solely on the basis of that story, not only did 
Banco Popular close the account of Euro Pacific Asset Management, but they also said that none of the owners or officers of Euro Pacific Asset Management could do business with Banco Popular. So we were also forced to close our personal accounts. Now, first of all, Euro Pacific Asset Management is a completely different company from Euro Pacific Bank, which was the company that was featured in these stories. So different company, different management, different ownership structure, but that didn't matter to Banco Popular. All that mattered to them was that I had ownership interest in both. I had a passive ownership interest in the bank and I have an ownership interest and I'm an employee of Euro Pacific Asset Management. And therefore, they didn't want to bank with Euro Pacific Asset Management. But not only that, they didn't even want to bank with anybody who was affiliated, any of the other officers, because Jim Nelson has absolutely nothing to do with Euro Pacific Bank. He has no ownership interest. He has no involvement in the business, but he's guilty merely as a result of his association with me. They wouldn't even let him have a personal account. Even though they closed the business account of a completely separate business, they said, you have to have your personal account closed as well. Now, of course, we've been dealing with Banco Popular for eight years. So they see the type of transactions that we do. They've never had a single problem with any of the transactions that we've done. Nothing has been a red flag, no AML issues. So they certainly know their customer and they should know that based on this information that these allegations uh, raised by 60 Minutes Australia are false. And in fact, Banco Popular did not make any effort whatsoever to ascertain whether or not the allegations were true or false. They didn't ask to see any of the independent audits uh, of Euro Pacific Bank. Uh, they didn't want any information that might let them make an informed decision as to whether or not any of the allegations by 60 Minutes were true. Simply because the allegation was made, they tossed an eight-year relationship out the window and said, you're out of here. Uh, we don't want to do business with you. And of course, that was very inconvenient for us. Now, again, you know, they're a private business. Uh, they don't want to do business with me. That's their prerogative. They don't have to do business with me. I think it's lousy uh, customer service. I mean, I think it's ultimately going to be bad for their reputation because I think that you owe a certain degree of loyalty to customers that have been with you for a long time and understand that, hey, you're disrupting their business by abruptly telling them that they need to find a new bank account. And we did. Ultimately, we found uh, banks that would take our business actually outside of Puerto Rico. Uh, so we ended up moving our banking back to the United States, our corporate banking from Puerto Rico. But we did find another Puerto Rican bank uh, First Bank, which was willing to take our personal accounts. And they were willing to take my personal account and Jim's personal account, even though they were aware of the same allegations that were made by 60 Minutes. They had the same information that Banco Popular had. But what they didn't have was the benefit of an eight-year relationship where they knew firsthand that we were good guys yet they were willing to take a chance on banking us anyway. And of course, I don't really think it's much of a chance because we're not doing anything wrong. <laughs> and there's no evidence that we ever did anything wrong. But again, this shows you how much these regulations impact banking because Banco Popular was simply afraid to associate with Peter Schiff 
or any businesses or other individuals that had any nexus to Peter Schiff. So they basically shut the whole thing down because they didn't have the guts to try to explain to their regulators why they would be doing business with me. Now, fortunately, First Bank uh, decided to go the extra mile uh, to look into it and hear our side of the story and ultimately conclude uh, that it was worth uh, banking us and they decided to do that. So one of the other reasons that I bring this up, apart from showing uh, how ridiculous these regulations are because they force banks to make the type of decisions that Banco Popular made. As far as I'm concerned, Banco Popular can do whatever it wants. But if Banco Popular isn't going to stand behind its customers, then I don't think the customers should stand behind Popular when you have other banks in Puerto Rico uh, that treat their customers better. So I've never actually recommended officially that anybody bank with any particular bank. Um, but given the experiences I've now had in the island with Banco Popular and First Bank, I would now encourage people to choose First Bank over Popular. So if you are moving to Puerto Rico, and I think a lot of people are coming in 2021, uh, some of them probably as a result of my podcast, but when you get here and if you have to open up a bank account, open it up at First Bank. And if you already have a bank account and you're with Popular, it may be a little inconvenient, but if you want to kind of show some solidarity and send the right kind of message to a bank that treats its customers the way Popular did, maybe move your account over to First Bank. My contact over there, his name is Maria Carmen. She heads up the Platinum Accounts Group. Uh, if you want to contact her group, you can email her at platinumbankingpr at firstbankpr.com. That's uh, the email address to get in touch uh, with First Bank. Maria Carmen is the leader of that group. She did an excellent job of getting my accounts set up. And so I'm uh, thankful for that. And by the way, you know, <laughs> I know I'm taking some commercials these days uh, on the podcast, turning this from a hobby to a business, but I am getting no uh, remunerations at all. I am not, this is not a commercial for First Bank. I am just recommending First Bank based on my personal experience and in particular based on the very bad experience that I had with Banco Popular and the unprofessional manner in which I believe they treated me. Yes, being in the banking industry, I understand the dilemma that they had. I know that Europe Pacific Bank has had to close relationships based on red flags, but given the extent of the relationship that we had, the number of years uh, that we go back, I think they could have at least looked into these allegations and been a little bit more straightforward with us before just terminating the relationship. And, and, and therefore, I think that's bad business practices, and I don't think it should be rewarded, especially by people who are only in Puerto Rico because of me or are here in large part because of me. So they came to Puerto Rico because of Peter Schiff. Why would you then want to do business with a bank that refuses to do business with Peter Schiff? Thank you.